You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled Transforming the Soul, Volume 1, and it is translated by Charles Davy and Christian von Arnhem and revised for this edition by Pauline Verla. This is Lecture 8, entitled The Buddha and Christ, given in Berlin on the 2nd of December 1909. Ever since its foundation, the spiritual scientific movement has suffered from being confused with all sorts of other directions and strivings of the present day. Particularly, it is accused of trying to transplant certain oriental spiritual streams, especially that of Buddhism, into Western culture. Therefore, our subject today has a special relevance for spiritual research. We are going to consider the significance of the Buddhist religion on the one hand and that of Christianity on the other, from the standpoint of spiritual science. Those of you who have often attended these lectures will know that we shall be making our study in a scientific way and ranging widely over world events from the point of view of spiritual life. Anyone who has thought at all seriously about Buddhism will know that its founder, Gautama Buddha, always refused to answer questions concerning the evolution of the world and the foundations of our human existence. He wished to speak only about the means by which human beings could achieve a way of existence that would be satisfying in itself. This fact alone should be enough to distinguish Buddhism from spiritual science for spiritual science never refuses to speak about world origins and the great facts of evolution. And if one particular aspect of spiritual science is being more and more often confused with Buddhism, namely our view of repeated earth lives and the working of spiritual causes from earlier lives into later ones, it is strange that the reproach is made against spiritual science that this view of reincarnation is Buddhism. By now people should have grasped that spiritual science is not concerned with names but with actual truths that can be researched independently of any name that may be given to it. The fact that the doctrine of reincarnation or of repeated earth lives is to be found among the views of Gautama Buddha, though in quite different form, has no more significance for present-day theosophy or spiritual science than the fact that our elementary ideas on geometry are to be found in Euclid. And it would be just as absurd to bring a charge of Buddhism against spiritual science because it has a doctrine of reincarnation and similar ideas are to be found in Buddhism as it would be to accuse a geometry teacher of practicing Euclidism. At the same time, It is essential to point out that spiritual science provides a means of testing the spiritual sources of every religion, including Christianity, 
the basis of our European culture on the one hand and Buddhism on the other. The notion that spiritual science is supposed to be Buddhism is not confined to people who know nothing of anthroposophy. Even the great Orientalist, Max Müller, who has done so much to make Oriental religions better known in Europe, cannot be talked out of it. In discussing it with another writer, he used the following analogy. If, he says, a man were to be seen with a pig that was a good grunter, no one would find anything special about him. But if a man all by himself could mimic the grunting of the pig to perfection, people would look on it as a wonder. Max Müller chose this example because the pig which grunts by nature was meant to represent Buddhism, which by then had become known in Europe. But its teaching, he says, was attracting no attention, while false Buddhism, or what he calls Madame Blavatsky's theosophical swindle, was gaining wide acceptance. You may find this analogy rather unfortunate, but apart from the fact that it is hardly polite to represent the true teaching of Buddhism, which came to birth with so much travail, by the grunting of a pig, Max Müller is also saying that Madame Blavatsky presented Buddhism especially badly. In other words, it cannot be compared with a person succeeding in making a very good imitation of the grunting of a pig, for in that case we would have to take it that Madame Blavatsky succeeded especially well with the deception. Madame Blavatsky certainly deserves credit for having set the ball rolling. But nowadays very few sensible theosophists believe that she was successful in reproducing true and genuine Buddhism. But there is no need to do this. For it is just as unnecessary for a theosophy teacher to reproduce Buddhism as it is for a geometry teacher to reproduce Euclid. If we want to enter into the spirit of Buddhism in a spiritual, scientific way, so that we may then compare it with the spirit of Christianity, we had better not proceed immediately to its deeper doctrines, which can readily be interpreted in various ways. We will, rather, try to gain an impression of its significance and range, symptomatically, from its whole way of thinking and forming ideas. Our best course is to start with a document that is very highly regarded in Buddhist circles, the questions put by King Melinda to the Buddhist sage Nagasena. Here we find a conversation that brings out the inner character of the Buddhist way of thinking. Melinda, the mighty and brilliant king, who has never been defeated by a sage, being able always to repulse any objections brought against his own ideas, wants to converse with Nagasena about the immortal, eternal element in human nature, which passes from one incarnation to the next. Nagasena asks the king, quote, How did you come here, on foot or in a chariot? Close quote. In a chariot, the king replies. Now, says Nagasena, let us inquire into this question of the chariot. What is it? Is the axle the chariot? No. Is it the wheels? No. Is it the yoke? No. Is it the seat you sat on? No. And so on. Says Naga- oh, and so, says Nagasena, we may go through all the parts of the chariot, and none of them is the chariot. 
Yet the chariot we have in front of us is made up entirely of these separate parts. Chariot is only a name for the sum total of these parts. If we set aside the parts, we have nothing left but the name. Nagasena's aim in all this is to divert the attention from everything the I, E-Y-E, can cling to in the physical world. He wants to show that the composite form, designated by a name, does not actually exist as such in the physical world, so that he may bring out the worthlessness and meaninglessness of the various physical sense-perceptible phenomena. And in order to make the point of this parable quite clear, Nagasena says, It is the same with the composite form that is man, and which passes from one earthly life to another. Is it the arms, legs, and head that pass from one earthly life to another? No. Is it what you are doing today and will do tomorrow? No. What is it, then, that constitutes a human being? It is the name and the form. But it is the same as it was with the name and the form of the chariot. If we look at the sum of the parts, we only have a name. There is nothing really there apart from the parts. We can bring out the argument even more clearly by turning to another parable that Nagasena sets before King Melinda. The king speaks, O wise Nagasena, you say that what passes from one incarnation to another are the name and form of the human being. When these appear on earth in a new incarnation, are they the name and form of the same being? To which Nagasena answers, Look at this, the mango tree bears a fruit. Then a thief comes and steals the fruit. The owner of the mango tree cries, You have stolen my fruit. But the thief says, It is not your fruit. Your fruit was the one you buried in the ground, and that is dissolved. The fruit now growing on the tree has the same name, but it is not your fruit. Nagasena then continues, Yes, it is true. The fruit has the same name and form, but it is not the same fruit. Yet the thief can still be punished for his theft. And it is the same with what reappears in one earthly life compared with what appeared in previous incarnations. But it is only because the owner of the mango tree planted a fruit in the earth that fruit now grows on the tree. Therefore we must regard the fruit as the property of the man who planted the fruit. And it is similar with the deeds and destiny of a person's new life on earth. We must look on them as the effects, the fruit of the previous life. But what appears is something new, just as is the fruit on the mango tree. In this way Nagasena sought to dissolve what once existed in one incarnation in order to show that it is only its effects that survive for the next life on earth. This approach can give us a much better feeling of the whole spirit of the Buddhistic teaching than we could gain from its general principles. For these, as I said, can be interpreted in various ways. If we allow the spirit of Nagasena's parable to work on us, we can see clearly enough that a Buddhist wants to draw his disciples away from everything that stands here before us as an individual human ego, a definite personality, and wants, above all, to direct attention to the idea that although what appears in a new incarnation is indeed the effect of the previous personality, we have no right to speak in any true sense 
of a coherent ego which passes from one earthly life to another. If we now turn from Buddhism to Christianity, we can, although this has never been chosen as an example, rewrite Nagasena's example in a Christian sense like this. Let us suppose that King Melinda has returned again as a Christian, and if he speaks out of the spirit of Christianity, then he would have to say something like this. Look at your hand. Is this the human being? No, the hand alone does not amount to a human being. But if we cut a human being's hand off, it will wither, and in three weeks' time it would no longer be a hand. What is it then that makes a hand a hand? It is the human being that makes the hand a hand. Is your heart the human being? No. Is the heart something self-sufficient? No. For if we remove from the heart from the human being, it will soon cease to be a heart, and the human being will cease to be a human being. So the heart is a heart because it belongs to a human being, and the human being needs a heart to be a human being. In the living human organism, we have parts which in themselves are nothing, but which only mean something as part of a composite whole. And if we think about what the separate parts lack on their own, we see that we have to look beyond them to an invisible agency that governs them, holds them together, and uses them as instruments to serve its needs. But even when we survey all the parts, by regarding them as a sum of the various parts, we have still not got hold of the human being. Nagasena could then return to his parable of the chariot and might say, speaking now in a Christian sense, True, the axle is not the chariot, for the axle alone you cannot drive. True, the wheels are not the chariot, for with the wheels alone you cannot drive. True, the yoke is not the chariot, for the yoke alone, for with the yoke alone you cannot drive. True, the seat is not the chariot, for with the seat alone you cannot drive, and although the chariot is only a name for the assembled parts, you do not drive with the parts, but with something that is not the parts. So the name does stand for something specific. It leads us to something that is not confined to any of the parts. Thus the spirit of Buddhist teaching aims at diverting attention from the visible in order to get beyond it, and to deny the possibility of there being anything of significance in it. The Christian approach, and this is the essential thing, sees the parts of a chariot or any other object in such a way that the mind is directed from the parts to the whole. And from these totally different ways of thinking there arise definite consequences which are totally different. If we now follow the Buddhist approach to its logical conclusion, its consequences will be plain to see. Let us look at a human being. He is composed of various parts. He is active in the world and performs various deeds. The Buddhist teaching tells him that everything around him is worthless. The nothingness and non-existence of everything visible is impressed upon him. Then he is told that he ought to free himself from depending on this nothingness in order to reach a higher state of being that is real, that he must turn his attention away from the sense world and from everything he could learn about it through his human faculties, get away from the sense world. 
For if we reduce to name and form everything offered by the sense world, its nothingness is revealed. There is no truth in the sense world around us. What does the Christian way of thinking lead to? It regards a single part of an organism not as a single part, but as filled and governed by something that is real and whole. A hand, for example, is a hand only because a human being makes use of it as a hand. The thing we see points directly to something behind it. This way of thinking leads to findings very different from those that derive from the Buddhist way. It follows that we can say, a human being stands before us. He exists as a human being only because behind him there is a spiritual entity who activates his constituent parts and is the directing source of all he does and accomplishes. That which comes to expression in his various parts has poured itself into this visible being where it experiences the fruits of action. From these experiences in the sense world, it extracts something we can call a result, in quotes, and this it carries over itself into a following incarnation, a following life on earth. Behind the external appearance, there is this active human being, this doer, who does not reject the outer world, but handles it in such a way that its fruits are preserved and carried over into the next life. If, as spiritual scientists, we stand for reincarnation, we must say, for Buddhism, the central unifying element in a person's life on earth does not endure. Only his actions have effects for the next life. For Christianity, the unifying element in a person's life is his ego with its contents. This ego endures and carries over into the next life all the fruits of the preceding one. So, we see that there is a tremendous difference between these two worldviews and that this is due to a quite specific configuration in thinking, which is far more important than any theory or principle. If, in our time, people were not so wedded to theories about everything, they would find it easier to recognize the characteristic qualities of a spiritual movement by its manner of thinking. All this is connected with a final difference between the Buddhist and the Christian outlook. The core of Buddhist doctrine has been set forth in immensely significant words by the founder of Buddhism himself. And this lecture is really and truly not being given in order to promote opposition to the great originator of Buddhist teaching, but to describe this world outlook quite objectively. It is precisely spiritual science that has to be seen as the right instrument for penetrating without sympathy or antipathy for one direction or another into the heart of the various spiritual movements of the world. The Buddha legend brings out clearly enough, even if in pictorial form, what the founder of Buddhism was aiming for. We are told that Gautama Buddha, the son of King Sudhadana, was brought up in a royal palace where everything around him was designed to enhance the quality of life. Throughout his youth he learned nothing of human sorrow or suffering. He was surrounded only by happiness, pleasure and diversion. 
One day he left the palace, and for the first time the pains and sorrows, all the shadow side of human life, met him face to face. He saw a man stricken with disease. He saw an old man succumb to the infirmities of old age. And what was most striking of all, he saw a corpse. And he realized that life must be different from what he had seen of it in the royal palace, where he was only shown the joys of life, never illness and death. He saw now that life involves decline and death, and it weighed heavily on the Buddha's soul that human life entails pain and suffering, as he had seen in the sick man, the old man, and the corpse. For he said to himself, What is life worth if old age, sickness, and death are an inescapable part of it? These reflections gave rise to the Buddha's monumental doctrine of suffering, which he summarized in the words, Birth is suffering, old age is suffering, illness is suffering, death is suffering. All existence is filled with suffering. That we cannot always be united with what we love, this is how the Buddha himself later developed his teaching, is suffering. That we have to be united with what we do not love is suffering. That we cannot attain in every sphere of life what we want and desire is suffering. Thus there is suffering wherever we look. Even though the word suffering, as used by the Buddha, did not have quite the meaning it has today, it did mean that human beings are exposed on all sides to whatever impinges on them from outside, against which they can muster no effective counterforces. Life is suffering, and therefore said the Buddha, we must investigate the causes of suffering. And he became aware of the phenomenon he called the thirst for existence. If we see suffering wherever we look, then human beings are bound to encounter suffering just by coming into this world of suffering. Why do they have to suffer in this way? The reason is that they have an urge, a thirst, for incarnation into this world. The passionate desire to leave the spiritual world and enter physical, physical corporeality and perceive the physical world is the basic cause of human existence. Therefore, there is only one way of being released from suffering, and that is to combat the thirst for existence. And this can be done by learning to follow the Eightfold Path in accordance with the teaching of the great Buddha. This is usually taken to embrace the right insight, the right aims, the right speech, the right actions, the right living, the right endeavor, the right thoughts, and the right meditation. By taking hold of life and relating to it the right way, human beings will, according to Buddha, gradually be brought to the point where they can kill off the thirst for existence which will finally enable them no longer to have to descend into physical incarnation, and they will be released from an existence full of suffering. These are, according to Buddha, the four holy truths. Number one, knowledge of suffering. Number two, knowledge of the causes of suffering. Number three, knowledge of the need to end suffering. Number four, knowledge of the means to end suffering. These are the four holy truths that were proclaimed by the Buddha 
in his great sermon at Benares from the 5th to the 6th century B.C. after his illumination under the Bodhi tree. Release from the suffering of existence is what the Buddha stresses more than anything else. And that is why it can be called a religion of redemption, in the most eminent sense, a religion of release from the suffering of existence, and therefore, since all existence is bound up with suffering, is release altogether from the cycle of repeated lives on earth. This is quite in keeping with the conceptions described in the first part of this lecture. For if thought, directed to the outer world, finds only nothingness, if that which holds together the parts of anything is only name and form, and if there is no agent behind the carrying over of the effects of one incarnation into the next, then we can say that true existence can be achieved only if human beings pass beyond everything they find in the sense world. It would obviously not be right to call Christianity a religion of redemption in the same sense as Buddhism. If we wish, from this standpoint, to put Christianity in its right relationship to Buddhism, we could call it a religion of rebirth. For Christianity is based on a recognition that the value of an individual bears fruits which are of importance and value for the innermost core of the human being and are carried over into a new life where they spring to life on a higher level of fulfillment. All that we experience and extract from a single life appears again and again, becoming more and more perfected until it appears at last in its spiritual form. Even the least significant elements in our existence, if they are taken up into the spirit, are reawakened on an ever more perfect level and become a part of our spiritual being. Nothing in human existence is in vain because it goes through a resurrection when the spirit has brought it into the right form. It is as a religion of rebirth, of the resurrection of the best that we have experienced, that we should think of Christianity, a religion according to which nothing is in vain, but all goes to form building stones, to build the great edifice that is to arise through the combining of everything that is spiritual in the surrounding sense world. Buddhism is a religion of release from existence while Christianity is a religion of rebirth on a spiritual level. This is evident in the way each thinks about things from the smallest to the greatest and in their ultimate principles. If we look for the actual causes of this difference, we shall find them in the totally opposite character of the Eastern and our Western culture. There is a radical difference in the way people think in the culture out of which Buddhism arose and in the culture into which Christianity entered. This difference can be described quite simply. All genuine Eastern culture that has not yet been fructified by the West is non-historical, whereas all Western culture is historical. And that is ultimately the difference between the Christian and the Buddhist outlooks. The Christian way of thinking is historical, it recognizes not only that repeated earth lives occur, but that they form an historical sequence, so that what is first experienced 
on a more imperfect level can develop in the course of incarnations to ever higher and more perfect levels. While Buddhism sees release from earth existence in terms of ascending to nirvana, Christianity sees its aim as a continuing process of development whereby all the products and achievements of the various incarnations shine forth in ever higher stages of perfection until, spiritualized, they are resurrected at the end of earth existence. Buddhism is non-historical in keeping with the cultural background from which it sprang. It is non-historical in that it sees no reciprocal action between the outer world and man as a doer. An adherent of Buddhism, whether looking back at earlier incarnations or forward to later incarnations of human beings, does not ask whether their relationship to the outer world changes in the course of incarnations whereas this is a question that Christianity does ask. Therefore, Buddhism arrives at the view that the relationship of human beings to the world in which they are incarnated is always the same. Driven into incarnation by the thirst for existence, they enter a world of suffering, irrespective of whether the world called forth this thirst in them in the past or is doing so now. The outer world will bring them suffering every time. Earth lives, excuse me, earth lives repeat and repeat without Buddhism actually connecting the concept of evolution with historical development. This is why Buddhism can see its nirvana, its state of bliss, as attainable only by withdrawing from the ever-repeated cycle of lives on earth and why it has to regard the world itself as the source of human suffering. For it says that whenever we enter the sense world, we are bound to suffer, for the sense world cannot but bring us suffering. This is not Christian. The Christian outlook is historical through and through. It is not concerned with a timeless, non-historical relationship to the outer world. It certainly recognizes that human beings, in being born again and again, face an outer world. But if the world brings them suffering or leaves them unsatisfied, deprived of an inwardly harmonious existence, this is not because earthly life is always such that human beings must suffer, but because they have brought themselves into a wrong relationship to the outer world. Both Christianity and the Old Testament point to a specific event because of which the inner life of human beings has been so affected that this can make their existence in the outer world into a source of suffering. Indeed, it is not the world into which we are incarnated and which penetrates our senses that brings us suffering, but rather that the human race has undergone a change as a result of which it does not relate in the right way to the external world. This has been passed on down the generations and is still the cause of human suffering today. In a Christian sense, we could say that since the beginning of their earthly existence, human beings have not established a proper relationship to the external world. We can look at this insight with respect to the fundamental doctrines of the two religions. Buddhism will always emphasize 
that the outer world is maya, illusion. Christianity, on the contrary, says that human beings may in the first instance believe that what they see of the outer world is an illusion. But this is dependent on the fact that human beings' organs are so constituted that they cannot see through the external veil to the spiritual world. The outer world itself is not illusion. The way human beings see things is the cause of the illusion. It is Buddhistic to say, look at the rocks around you and at the lightning and thunder. This is Maya, illusion. Christian thinking would reply that it is wrong to call the outer world as such an illusion. No, it is human beings who have not yet found the way to open their spiritual senses, their spirit eyes and spirit ears, as Goethe would say, which would show them how to see the outer world in its true form. The reason why we are surrounded by Maya is not because the outer world is Maya, but because human beings are imperfect beings who have not yet been able to see the world as it really is. Christianity accordingly looks for a prehistoric event which has prevented the human heart from forming a true picture of the outer world. And evolution as it takes its course through one incarnation after another must be seen in the Christian sense to be the means of regaining our spirit eyes and spirit ears in order to see the outer world's true form. Repeated earth lives are, therefore, not meaningless, but are the means of seeing in a spiritual light, as spirit, the very world from which Buddhism wishes to liberate us. To break through the physical appearance of the world with spiritual capacities we do not yet possess, to break through the human error that the outer world is only maya, that is the innermost impulse of Christianity. Christianity, therefore, does not present us with a teacher who, as in Buddhism, tells us that the world is a source of suffering and that we must get away from it into another world that is quite different, the world of nirvana. Christianity presents us in the Christ with a mighty impulse to lead the world forward and who has pointed us in the most significant way to build our center in our innermost being, where we develop those forces that will enable us to make use of every incarnation on the earth so that we carry through our own powers the fruits of one life into later lives. The incarnations are not to cease in order to open the way to nirvana. But all that we can acquire in these incarnations is to be made use of and developed in order to resurrect in the spirit. This is the most profound difference which shows Buddhism to be a non-historical outlook and Christianity an historical one. Christianity looks back to a fall of man as the source of pain and suffering and forward to a resurrection as the cure for suffering and pain. We shall not become free of pain and suffering by turning our backs on existence, but only by making good the error which has placed human beings in a false relationship to the surrounding world. The reason why the outer world is a source of suffering lies in us.
If we put right our relationship to our surroundings, we shall indeed see that the sense-perceptible world dissolves like mist before the sun. But this will make way for all the deeds we have performed here to be resurrected on the spiritual plane. Christianity is thus a doctrine of reincarnation and resurrection, and only in that light may we place it beside Buddhism. This, however, involves contrasting the two religions in the sense of spiritual science and entering into the deepest impulses of both. All that I have said in general terms can be substantiated down to the smallest details. For instance, we can also find in Buddhism something like the Sermon on the Mount. It says there, He that hears the law, that is, the law imparted by the Buddha, is blessed. He who raises himself above passion is blessed. He who is able to live in loneliness is blessed. He who is able to live with the creatures of the earth without doing evil is blessed, and so on. We could regard the Buddhistic Beatitudes as a counterpart to the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount in St. Matthew's Gospel. We have only to understand them in the right way. Let us compare them with what we find in St. Matthew's Gospel. They begin with the powerful words, Blessed are they who are beggars in the Spirit, for they will find within themselves the kingdom of heaven. It does not only say, Blessed are they who hear the law, but a further statement is added, so that what it says is, Blessed are they who are poor in spirit, so that they have to beg for it, for then theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? We can only understand such a statement if we bear in mind the whole historical character of the Christian outlook. We have to remember, first of all, that all the human faculties have gone through a history, an evolution. Spiritual science understands evolution in its essence to mean that what is there today has not always been there. It tells us that what we call our rational mind, our scientific way of thinking, did not exist in primeval times. In place of it was something we might call a dim, hazy clairvoyance. In earlier times, people did not acquire knowledge of the outer world in the way we do today. There arose in them a kind of primeval wisdom, which went far beyond anything we have been able to establish today. Anyone who knows what history really is knows that such a primeval wisdom does exist. Whilst in those early times, human beings did not know how to build machines or railway engines or how to control the environment with the help of natural forces, their perception of the divine spiritual foundation of the world went far beyond our present knowledge. These experiences, however, were not acquired by reflective thought. It was nothing like that. They would not have proceeded as modern science can. They were given their knowledge in the form of inspirations which arose dimly in their souls. Although they were not fully conscious of their coming, they knew they had these revelations, which were real reflections of the spiritual world and of the existing primeval wisdom. But human evolution consisted of human beings progressing from life to life and 
receiving less and less of this primeval wisdom and the old hazy clairvoyance. This ancient clairvoyance had to go, and a grasping of things through reason came in its place. In the future human beings will unite the two faculties. They will be able to look clairvoyantly into the spiritual world while retaining the forms of modern knowledge. Today we are living in a transitional stage. Ancient clairvoyance has been lost, and what is typical of us today has only arisen in the course of time. How did it happen that human beings arrived at the point of being able to get to know the sense world with their reason in full consciousness? When did ego consciousness first arise in human beings? This was at the time, though world evolution is not usually looked at in such detail, when Christ Jesus appeared on earth. Human beings were just at that turning point in evolution, when the old clairvoyance had been lost, and the scene was set for the arrival of the kind of mindset which gives us the best achievements of our time. And just at this turning point from the old to the new age, was the moment when the Christ entered world evolution. In very fact, the Christ was the turning point from the old to the new way of perceiving. And when John the Baptist proclaimed, The kingdom of heaven is at hand, he was simply using a technical expression for abilities human beings acquired when they began to obtain knowledge of the world in conscious self-awareness and no longer through inspirations. The Baptist's call means that knowledge of the world in concepts and ideas is approaching. Human beings are no longer dependent on the old clairvoyance, but can investigate and understand the world for themselves. And this mightiest of impulses to obtain knowledge by way of their I, capital, and not through inspirations, was given by the Christ. Therefore, right from the very first words, of the Sermon on the Mount, there is something very profound that might be interpreted as human beings are now at the stage where they are beggars for the Spirit. In the past, they had clairvoyant vision and could look into the spiritual world. This has now gone. But the time will come when human beings, through the inner force of their ego, through the word that is being revealed through them, will be able to find an alternative for the old clairvoyance. Blessed, accordingly, are not only those who in ancient times gained the spirit through twilight inspirations, but also those who no longer have clairvoyance because evolution has brought them to that stage. Oh, they are indeed not unblessed, those people who are beggars for the spirit, because spiritually they are poor. Blessed are they, for theirs is that which will be revealed to them through their own ego and can be achieved by way of ego consciousness. Let us proceed. Blessed are they who suffer, for although the outer world is a cause of suffering because of our relationship to it, the time has now come when human beings, if they will take hold of their ego consciousness and develop the forces dwelling in their ego, will discover the remedy for suffering. Within themselves they will find the possibility of consolation, for the time has come 
when any external consolation loses significance, because the ego is to have the strength to find within itself the remedy for suffering. Blessed are they who can no longer find in the outer world all that was once found there. That is also the most important meaning of the beatitude, Blessed are they who thirst after justice, for they shall be satisfied. In the ego itself will be found a source that will supply just compensation for the injustice in the world. The coming of the Christ points to the human ego, the divine part of the human being. We should take into ourselves the living example of the Christ, for then we shall find the strength to carry over from one incarnation to another the fruits of our lives on earth. It is important for our life in the spiritual world that we should master what can be experienced in earthly existence. Bearing on this is an event which in the first instance is considered a painful chapter in Christianity, Christ's death, the mystery of Golgotha. This death does not have the same significance as an ordinary death. In this case, the Christ establishes death as the starting point of immortal, invincible life. This was not the kind of death in which Christ Jesus wished to liberate himself from life. He passed through it to bring about an upward thrust. And because out of this death there is to flow everlasting life, this was felt by those who lived in the first centuries of Christianity and will be recognized ever more widely when the Christ impulse is better understood. Then people will understand how it was that six centuries before Christ, one of the greatest of men walked forth from his palace and on seeing a corpse came to the conclusion that death is suffering, release from death is salvation. And he resolved that he would have no more to do with anything that lay under the dominion of death. Six centuries go by until the time of Christ. And after a further six centuries have passed by, a symbol is raised which will be understood only by people in the future. What is this symbol? Simple people, not chosen ones now, such as the Buddha, gathered round and saw this symbol, a cross raised up and a dead body on it. But they did not say, death is suffering, and turn away from it. For they saw it as a pledge of the eternal nature of life, as the power that conquers death and points beyond the world of the senses. The noble Buddha saw a corpse. He turned away from the sense world and decided that death is suffering. The simple folk who looked upon the cross with the corpse on it did not turn away from the sight. For them it was the testimony that from this earthly death there springs eternal life. Six hundred years before the founding of Christianity, the Buddha faced a corpse and six hundred years after the coming of Christ, simple people saw the symbol which expressed for them what had come about through the founding of Christianity. At no other time has there been such a turning point in the evolution of humankind. If we look at these things objectively, we come to see even more clearly where the essence of the significance and greatness of the Buddha lies. As we have said, human beings had at the start a primeval wisdom 
which in the course of successive incarnations was gradually lost. The appearance of the great Buddha marks the end of an old stage of development. It provides the strongest historical evidence that human beings have lost the old knowledge, the ancient primeval wisdom, and this explains the turning away from life. The Christ is the starting point of a new stage of development which sees the source of eternal life in this earthly life. In our time, these important facts of humanity's evolution are still not clearly understood. That is why it can happen today that people of a fine and noble nature, unable to gain from modern viewpoints what they need for their inner life, turn to something different and find salvation in Buddhism. And Buddhism does show, in a certain sense, how human beings can be lifted up out of sense existence and through a particular unfolding of their inner forces can rise above themselves. But this can occur only because the greatest impulse, the innermost source of Christianity, is still so little understood. Spiritual science should be instrumental for penetrating ever more deeply into a Christian way of understanding the world. And precisely the idea of evolution, to which spiritual science does full justice, will be capable of bringing human beings to a detailed and deep grasp of Christianity. Spiritual science can therefore cherish the hope that a rightly understood Christianity will stand out ever more prominently from all misinterpretations of it without transplanting Buddhism into our time. Any attempt to do this on the part of my, of any spiritual scientific stream would indeed be short-sighted. Those who understand the circumstances underlying European spiritual cultural life will know that even those directions which are apparently opposed to and fight against Christianity have drawn their whole armory and weapons from Christianity itself. However grotesque this sounds, there could not have been a Darwin or a Haeckel if Christian education had not enabled them to think the way they did, if the thought forms had not been available through their Christian education, with which to, as it were, attack their own mother. What these people say, and the tone of voice with which they say it, is apparently often directed against Christianity, but it is a Christian education that enables them to think this way. It would be a hopeless proposition, to say the least, for anyone to try to introduce anything oriental into our culture, for it would contradict all the conditions of our spiritual cultural life in the West. We have to have a clear grasp of the basic teachings of the two religions, Anyone who looks into contemporary spiritual life more deeply will know, of course, that matters are still so unresolved that there are still people of the highest philosophical eminence who want to turn away from life and are moved to feel sympathy for the thoughts of Buddhism. We, we have an example of this in Schopenhauer. The whole mainstream of his life has something Buddhistic about it. For example, he says that the best model for a human being is a person we call a saint, who has overcome everything with which the world presents him. All that remains to him is his body on the one hand and ideals from the environment on the other.
he has no desires, but is simply waiting until his body is destroyed so that every trace of his connection with the sense world will have vanished. By turning away from the sense world, he can nullify his own sense existence so that there is nothing left of what leads in life from fear to suffering, from suffering to terror, from desire to pain. This is a projection of Buddhist sentiment into the West, and we must recognize that it comes about because the deepest impulse of Christianity is not understood, neither in its content nor its form. What we, what have we gained from Christianity? Focusing on the impulse as such, what we have gained is precisely what we see in the difference between one of the most significant personalities of recent times and Schopenhauer. While Schopenhauer's ideal is someone who has overcome everything that external life can give in the way of pleasure and pain, and is just waiting for the last traces to dissolve of the connection holding the body to life, Goethe, on the other hand, shows us in his Faust a striving human being who swings from desire to satisfaction and from satisfaction to desire until he has finally purified himself and transformed his desires to such an extent that the highest ideal that can illuminate our life becomes his passionate goal. He does not stand there and say, I am waiting until the last traces of my earthly existence have been extinguished, but utters the great words, Not in eons will the traces of my days on earth pass away. Goethe presented the content and spirit of this in his Faust, in the same way as in old age he said to his secretary Eckermann, You will admit that the closing passage when the redeemed soul is borne aloft, was very difficult to manage, and with such supersensible, hardly graspable things, I could easily have lost myself in vagueness if I had not made use of the clearly defined figures and images from the Christian Church to give my poetic intentions the requisite form and substance. So Faust's climb up the stairway of existence is represented in Christian symbols from mortal to immortal, from death to life. What we are seeing in Schopenhauer is an unmistakable projection of Buddhist elements into our Western way of thinking that says things such as, I am waiting until I reach the stage of perfection and my body has come to the point where the last traces of earth existence have been erased. And Schopenhauer was of the belief that this view explained the figures portrayed by Raphael and Correggio in their paintings. Goethe, on the other hand, presented us with a striving individual who was well aware that everything achieved in earthly life must be enduring and woven into eternity. Quote, Not in eons will the traces of my days on earth pass away. Close quote. This is the real and realistic Christian impulse, which leads to the reawakening of our earthly deeds in a spiritual form. This is the religion of resurrection, which provides for the best earthly achievements to be reawakened. This is, in the true sense, a realistic worldview, which knows how to draw down from spiritual heights the loftiest elements for our life 
in the world of the senses. And we can say that it is precisely in Goethe that we see, like a dawning light, a Christianity of the future beginning to come into its own. This kind of Christianity will recognize all the greatness and significance of Buddhism, but in contrast to the Buddha, turning away from incarnation, it will recognize the value of earthly life in the sequence of incarnations. Thus Goethe, in a truly modern Christian sense, looks at a past where a world gave birth to us and to a present in which what we achieve, if we see its real fruits for what they are, can never pass away. Therefore, if Goethe sees human beings connected in a genuinely spiritual scientific sense to the universe, he is bound to have to connect them on their other side to the real content of Christianity. This is why he can say, quote, As on the day that lent thee earthly being, the sun took salutation from the planets, so didst thou start thy course, and so hast sped it according to the law of thy first sending. So must thou be, thyself thou canst not flee from. Thus have the Sibyls, thus the prophets spoken. Goethe could not write in this way, describing the connection of man with the whole world, without pointing to the fact that just as the human being is born out of the constellation of existence, he means something for the world that through long eons cannot pass away, but which must celebrate its resurrection in spiritualized form. Therefore he had to add these further lines, quote, No time, no power can bring to dissolution the form once cast in living evolution. And we can say, No power and no time permits the destruction of what has in the course of time been achieved and will ripen as the fruit for eternity. The end of Lecture 8